Hey, everybody. Welcome to the home edition of the Talking to Ourselves podcast. I'm Omid Farhang, CCO at Momentum. My guest today, Jay Goodman, founder and CEO of Observatory, which was named to Fast Company's 2020 list of world's most innovative companies. Observatory is an agency spun out of CAA marketing, where Jay served as co-head and chief creative officer since 2006 and helped create the famed Chipotle content Back to the Start, as well as The Scarecrow, which combined to earn the agency four Grand Prix victories at Cannes and which go down among the all-time great branded content of the past decade. Prior to joining CAA, Jay worked at Publicis and Hal Reine in San Francisco and Wyden Kennedy in Portland. Under his leadership, Observatory has rapidly grown and expanded over the past few years, including global initiatives for Budweiser, Canada Goose, and Coca-Cola. He's been named to Fast Company's most creative people in business, Adweek's Creative 100, AdAge's Creativity 50, and PR Week's Hot List. He serves on the board of FE Worldwide and is a two-time Can Lion jury president. On a personal note, I worked for Jay at CAA for a couple years and it really was one of the best experiences of my career. I tell people working for him was sort of like paid business school and hopefully you're about to get a little taste of why that was. This is my friend Jay Goodman and I talking to ourselves. It's amazing that on television now we are seeing sort of, we are accepting that which we never so readily accepted with, which is messy and somewhat unproduced. And we're really forgiving of mistakes and kids running in and very strange backgrounds um, and weird bookshelves and things. And then as marketers, I feel like maybe a little bit of the same is happening where it's like, I feel like clients who have never really been down for experimentation are all, all of a sudden just open to, to, yeah. to being brought some weird stuff. Are you seeing the same thing? Yes. Well, I'd say our clients fall into thirds. The third that are open to that, the third who have been running in place since the day this happened and the third who can't control for whom marketing doesn't matter because their business is just disappearing. Right. But. I was thinking like how many questions should I ask about self quarantine and coronavirus? One of the things I love about this podcast is that each one sort of exists as like a library of evergreen conversations. It's almost impossible to avoid as I ask you about, you know, spinning off your own company three years ago that in many ways is well established, but in other ways probably has, you know, a lot of qualities of a startup in the face of the, you know, the weirdest moment of the last hundred years, especially for business. I've been, it's funny. I, I'm always taken by your perspective. If only in that I've been framing it in 50 years and leave it to you to expand it by another 50. And now I have to think back an additional 50 because I have been suggesting it's the greatest challenge and opportunity in 50 years, which you and I have talked about just in the context of the changing relationship between brands and content and distributors and creators. We've had this conversation a hundred times, but now you throw in the new variability and it probably is a hundred years, 102, I guess, if we're talking about the Spanish flu. Yeah. So we'll work back, we'll work back up to that, but let's start where we start all these conversations. Jay Goodman. Yeah, really, I assumed we're yeah. just, I assumed we're ripping pre-record there. No, no, I just, we just go. Oh, great. Uh, okay. we just go. And, uh, and I brought one hy hydrating beverage with me and then I brought one 
dehydrating beverage with me if you catch my drift. So, Fair enough. so if I start to slur through the course of this conversation, it's not an accident. It's three hours later where you are. <laughs> um, where do you, uh, so we start every conversation in the same spot. Jay Goodman, where are you from and what did your parents do? Uh, I'm from a few places. Uh, I'm from Elmhurst, Queens, New York, which unfortunately has come to the front of, uh, of the news with the challenges at Elmhurst Hospital. Uh, so three generations, one bedroom apartment in one of the not greatest neighborhoods in New York City in the 70s. Uh, and I got um, a real window on what it's like to be uh, not particularly wealthy. Uh, and uh, from there, I moved to Connecticut because my mom, single working mom, worked for American Airlines, moved to uh, Hartford, Connecticut, when American Airlines moved from the Chrysler building to there, and suddenly found myself in a super wealthy suburb of Hartford. But I was still from Elmhurst, Queens. So that gave me a whole shot of perspective. And then, uh, not to go too far into my personal life, but my dad won a custody battle when I was uh, 11 or 12, and I moved to Silicon Valley at the absolute peak of Silicon Valley 1.0. So I really grew up in three places, and you got the answer about my mom, 40 years at American Airlines, only job she ever had, and my dad's a Silicon Valley engineer. That's very surprising to me because you, to me, are – quintessential Southern California. But that, that at first I thought you just, I thought you grew up in Santa Monica. It's funny you say that because I never, I never felt while I, while there are in retrospect aspects of being from Elmhurst, Queens that I'll take with me forever, uh, like the value of a penny or a dollar um, and aspects of living in Connecticut that just kind of um, gave me a window on the genteel nature of East Coast preppiness at its peak. When I got to Silicon Valley, at the height of kind of Santa Cruz skateboards just coming on, I was like, oh, this is where I'm supposed to be from. But then when I visited the UCLA campus when choosing where to go to college, it washed over me, not to be cliche about Santa Monica, but like a wave that I had found home. So it took me until I was 18 years old, but Southern California is definitely home. So did 12-year-old Jay Goodman want to be a professional skateboarder? What did he want to be? 12-year-old yeah. Jay Goodman found very quickly that that was not going to be his fate, uh, skinned knees and elbows, uh, but it was, a, it was a great way to get around town. What did you study at UCLA? Political science and communications, I thought that I wanted to be um, a George Stephanopoulos, who at the time was not a media personality. He was a political communications consultant. Or on the Republican side, there was someone prior to him named Lee Atwater. And kind of the, the two of them had really shaped uh, communication. Lee Atwater was a, was a Reagan um, the great communicators, behind the scenes communicator. And I really loved the idea of shaping public opinion through politics. But the closer I got to politicians, the more I realized I'd be better off selling pants and shoes than humans. It's not hard to imagine. You do have some Stephanopoulos uh, vibes. And that's a compliment. I mean, the guy, the guy hosts a national show now. The pause was, uh, I wasn't, I'm not sure. I, I don't know what people think of Stephanopoulos, but I think yeah, Stephanopoulos is relatively beloved. Yeah, I guess he is. That's good to know. Uh, uh, so th then when did you discover uh, marketing as a, as a thing that might be for you? 
so jumping back and forth in time because it was um, accidental and serendipitous. When I was in a high school, I worked for a very well-known concert promoter by the name of Bill Graham, kind of the original rock and roll concert promoter. But my job was to help with brand partnerships, with sponsorships, just accidentally. They needed somebody to wash the Pontiacs because Pontiac was a sponsor of Shoreline Amphitheater, which is the live event venue Bill Graham built in Northern California. Uh, and so I, I learned about the interaction between brands and entertainment there. I also worked for Warren Miller Films coming right out of school. I was a skier, and so every skier wants to work for Warren Miller. I got lucky enough to do it. Um, and those films were brand supported. So I didn't so much discover marketing as accidentally discover that brands could have a role in, um, in the types of entertainment or engaging activity that humans sign up to do voluntarily. How's that for a kind of a weird non-answer? No, it worked for me. I mean, by my math, as I looked at some of uh, at doing some of my my hard hitting Googling research, I, I looked at the article when you started at Hal Reini, and they're like, you know, Goodman has had a 13 year career in advertising, and I'm just sort of doing the math and going, this guy did not waste a second after school. I mean, your career sort of start. There was no like bartending, backpacking gap year. No, I started in school. I mean, I worked for Bill Graham in high school. Uh, and then um, I took a year to get my act together in between high school and UCLA. And uh, I, I worked for the Southern California Bill Graham, a guy named Brian Murphy at Avalon Attractions in college. And that's where I met the people who brought me over to Warren Miller. So I was, um, I was working all the way through. I had to, frankly. I needed money. And if I was going to uh, earn money, I figured I may as well do it in something um, that that kind of fed my soul at the same time. You were the, the, the weird, ambitious ski bum. When yeah. I think of 20-year-old skiers, yeah. I don't think of like in the industrious. You know, it's funny, if you, if, you, if you want to digress into a random anecdote. So when I was a junior at UCLA, I did spend a lot of time skiing one winter. And I became very good friends with two great skiers. Their names are Brooks and Tom, for what it's worth. And Brooks and Tom were probably seven or eight years older than I was. And so I was crashing with them, and we were skiing from the moment you could get on the lift till they threw us off the mountain. And one night, Brooks and Tom sat me down in their really shabby apartment with their half-broken ski equipment around them. And they said, Jay, you're so ambitious. And what are you going to go into the real world and work so hard for? Ultimately, all you want is everything we have. We're not part of the rat race. We just get to ski every day. And I looked around and I was like, I know you're right because of how we're spending these days, but I don't want broken skis. And your couch is really fucking uncomfortable. <laughs> like, I can't do this. I need to go make a living. And even though it means I'll ski less, I'll enjoy it more. They're like, Jay, look around, bro. We have everything. And you're like, I've looked around. We don't. I got to go. You're right. But they weren't wrong. Right. Right. Like I just people have different perspective and different needs. And I needed to both be gainfully employed and feel like I was making my way through the professional world while also maximizing my ski time. 
I'm going to skip a little bit ahead here uh, to your days at Wyden Kennedy. I notice in your bio, you list your job titles at every stop except for Wyden Kennedy. Jay, are you embarrassed to tell people that you started as an account director at Wyden Kennedy? It doesn't say copywriter. I think it says copywriter on my LinkedIn, and it does jump right past the fact that I was absolutely hired as an account person there. Uh, and when I made the shift, uh, by the way, I thought I was a really exceptional account person. I was delusional because when I made the shift, the head of strategic planning, Chris Riley, walked up to me, put his arm around me. He's kind of a tall guy, so it's very memorable because I'm not a particularly tall guy. And so this big guy put his arm around me. And said, I just want to tell you something. And I was waiting for the great compliment about how happy he was for me to make the shift to copywriter at Wyden Kennedy. He says, you were the worst account person. Thank God we finally gave you a different opportunity. Um, so no, I, I, am, I, I was embarrassed at the time because my inner self really wanted to be a solution provider through creativity. In retrospect, there's not a chance I would have the career I've had had I not had the formative experience of being an account person. So there. Who gave you that chance? That's not a chance they're just handing out to anyone inside the building. No, seriously, you just signed up on a whiteboard. They were like, who wants to be a copywriter at Wyden in the 90s? And it, it must have been easier when you were there. Um, yeah, clearly, because they let me do it. Um, a lot of people, but ultimately, um, I mean, Dan and Dave Lure. So, so Dave Lure, longtime CEO, um, really lobbied for me with the creative director, Bob Moore, and another great creative director, Michael Preve, who were running Microsoft globally at the time. And the case we made collectively is while I may or may not turn out to be the best professional creative in the world, I definitely understood Microsoft's business um, and understood the language of engineers and could kind of translate that into things that humans, consumers would actually care about. Uh, and so Dave was really the one who got everybody there. And yeah. I bet you Dave wouldn't even remember that because he's such a great guy. He's doing things like that for people all the time. For me, it was the chance of a lifetime. For him, it was probably a 15-minute meeting to advocate for a young kid who wanted something. It's what's incredible about these small handful of agencies in any given era that, you know, are with the smallest conversations and the smallest, like, little leaps of faith in people are completely changing the trajectory of people's lives. Um, and I think that's why, you know, if you worked at any one of those places once, you sort of feel like you're that person for life. I, you know, you are a widened person for life. I'll be a, a, a CPB person for life. Now you have sort of droga people for life. That's a place that I know from working with you is really important to you. How were you different when you left Widen than when you showed up? Wow. It was powerfully professionally self-actualizing. Like there was no way I was going to have any other outcome than being the best creative professional I could be um, once I got there. Like there's just something about it that said, if you're miscast, if you, you know, never felt right in another organization or culture, this is a place that wants you to be exactly who you are on the inside and then channels that self-actualized energy 
you know, frankly, to the benefit of Wyden's culture and clients. It was really remarkable. And I don't think it's an accident. And you're right. It's Crispin on the heels of that. And it's Droga on the heels of that. I don't think it's an accident that when you look around the industry today, the people who are thriving um, were at, for the most part, one of those places. Yeah. You go on to become ECD at Hal Reine at the age of about 33. Were you ready for that job? Not at all. Uh, it, it, so I left Wyden um, to chase the dot-com dream, left with a few other Wyden people to go to San Francisco, bounced around a little there with them, and I got a phone call about taking the number two creative job at Reine. Um Hal had a foot and a half out the door, and um, may he rest in peace. That foot and a half were in a bar, um, and a really soulful, great human named Kirk Souter was kind of taking over the Hal role. And so I got a phone call about that number two, and I said, I don't know. Like, without Hal there, they've lost their creative mojo. I know who Kirk is. That's a monster job. I don't, I don't know if I have it in me. And um, Danny Lennon, who you know, who was the one on the other end of that phone line, she said, here's what I predict is going to happen. Hal's going to leave. Kirk is so soulful that he'll go follow his soul to do something different. And inside six months, you'll be running a billion-dollar agency. And I laughed. So I was like, all right, I guess I'll take the meeting. Like six months to a day. Kirk decides he's got to go do something more soulful, more important. Um, and he's done that with a company called Enzo since. Uh, and I think Sprint alone was a billion dollar domestic advertiser at the time. And we had HP globally and we had 24 hour fitness and others. And there is no way to answer your question that I was even remotely prepared for it. Uh, but I sure did learn a lot. I think it's one of the great mistakes when people ask me for career advice that we make in our industry is feeling like we have to be fully ready. It's like the whole point, if, if you're not ready, it's probably the right job. I mean, you don't want to be so grossly underprepared that you humiliate yourself, but sort of properly in over your head. Yeah. Uh, like that's where you want to be because if you show up to a thing that you're adequately prepared for, you're going to probably get pretty bored pretty quickly. Um, have you found the same thing when people come to you for advice as just sort of lamenting their preparedness for a thing that it's like, just fucking go? Yes. So there's, um, there's a kind of back pocket speech I have. I know for a fact that you've heard me give it to someone because it's a, uh, it's a colleague we shared who's gone on to great things. In fact, I'm going to share his name because we just talked about it the other day. Our car colleague, Ari Avishay when we were at CAA together. He had all the talent in the world. And um, for a long moment, um, it just somehow wasn't coming through. He was a little bit afraid. And um, I reached for that back pocket speech and it said something along the lines of, you know, dude, get off your heels and get on the balls of your feet. You've got this. I know you're running General Motors globally for a creative artist agency. We gave you that role for a reason. Dude, like, come out swinging. And he and I spoke last week, and um, he said, like, whether it was that moment or all the work that surrounded it that we did together, 
um, it was a really uh, formative moment for him. You know, uh, can I come back to one other thing about the, the Reine piece? Because Please. you reminded me as you talked about advocating for people um, and you said his name. There's no way I get the nod when Kirk leaves Reine uh, without David Droga. So David Droga was the um, global chief creative officer for Publicis and Publicis had taken a majority stake in Hal Reine. And so Maurice Levy flew in from Paris and David flew in from New York. And we had this meeting and uh, I had prepared my case for why I could take over this billion dollar agency. And I played some of my work. And if, if you know some of my early work, some of it was pretty weird, like the Virgin Mobile launch campaign. And Maurice, like literally his eyes rolled back in his head when he saw that. And he said, I don't know if you're ready. And I got like red faced. And before I could let any words come out of my mouth, because like he's also, by the way, he's Parisian, right? And the Parisian, they poke you, the Parisians poke you in the chest to see how you're going to react. And my wife had warned me of that because my wife had spent time in Paris and she's like, Maurice is going to poke you and see how you react. And I got red faced and was about to say something I would probably regret. And David goes, hey, mate, let's step outside for a sec. And David took me out on the balcony of Hal Reine, overlooking the San Francisco Bay. And he said, I'm just going to give you a minute to think about how you want to respond to that. And then we'll go back in and you'll get this job. Whoa. Yeah. I've never pulled anyone out of a room in the middle of a meeting before. Just that, that power move alone is very unique. But he didn't, I mean, look, he and Maurice knew each other well, and he and I were getting to know each other well. He didn't do it in such a way that it was like, there, was, there wasn't even the insinuation that I was about to make a mistake. It was like before that even, that energy got out of me and into the room, he smoked at the time. I don't know if he does now. And it was more like, hey, I'm going to grab a cigarette. Want to come? Right. Well, was, now, and, and there's another guy who, you know, was in some pretty big rooms at some pretty young ages and is probably thinking to himself, even the most talented among us, until you've been in this room enough times, you might make the mistake of talking before you've thought. You know, take that extra beat to think about what you really want to say here because this might be a turning point moment for you. Um, and just buying you that time. That's exactly. Okay, so let's go ahead and fast forward to CAA where you spent a decade. Uh, you hired me there in 2011. It's a place I continue to be fascinated by. It's a place I'm really happy I got to have a peek behind the curtain of. Uh, first, just for those who are less familiar, how do you describe what CAA marketing was during your you know, decade plus tenure within the context of the mothership that it sat in? Sure. Um, well, I can, let me provide a little connective tissue from, um, from Hal Reine and Publicis to that because I think it'll help frame it up. So Great. Um, I had a supposition going back to those early jobs at the intersection of entertainment and, and brands um, that we as creative people, especially in that moment when I had, as I mentioned, Sprint, the billion dollar domestic advertiser, that we could leverage that media buy um, and get the distributors of that media, you know, television networks, to buy shows from us, not just ads. And I developed a couple of shows, and as soon as the client would bite, so for example, 24 Hour Fitness, we developed a show for them, um, as soon as the, the, that became a thing, I found myself on phone calls with lawyers, lawyers for publicists, lawyers for the client, 
and everybody was arguing over, based on scopes of services, who owned the IP before we'd even sold it. And, and I remember I actually didn't control my emotions on one of these phone calls. I remember yelling at a conference call full of lawyers, like, we're dividing up an invisible pie. Like, we don't even know if this is a good television show idea. Nobody's taken this to try to sell it yet. And, um, and I realized I was probably sitting in the wrong place. So uh, I, I was very lucky in that I knew one agent at, at CAA. He had helped me sell a show to Fox Sports a couple years earlier. Uh, and he, and without getting into all the other machinations of it, there was a... Um, a small marketing consulting group inside the world's leading entertainment agency, which was not yet a sports agency. Today, we would say that the world's leading entertainment and sports agency, they had a small marketing consultancy who had helped brands partner with entertainment. They helped Coca-Cola become part of American Idol. They helped Hasbro turn their Transformers intellectual property into a movie franchise. By the way, not small things, but they were really smart strategic deal makers and um we together came up with the thought that we could build something that looked a lot more like an ad agency in terms of the skill sets of people who would work there brand strategists brand focused creatives you know uh brand agents if you will account people um and that while the form of the organization would look like a marketing services agency, what we would aim to create were the types of properties that CAA was selling to the entertainment ecosystem all day, every day. So that was the supposition that we could create stuff. If you're Googling, you've seen me say it 10 zillion times that, that brands could create content that attracts and engages an audience rather than interrupts it. That was the supposition and frankly, it still is. Well, and it holds as true today, even more so than it did then. You know, I'm going to come back to maybe a, a similar question as I asked you in the face of Maurice Levy, which is just, there's one thing to have um, a well thought out thesis about where the industry is headed and your role in it. And there's the other aspect of being able to sell that vision, being able to live up to that vision, being able to exude the confidence in a room full of people who are maybe the greatest masters in the world at analyzing, you know, and, and measuring someone's ability based on their confidence and energy in that room. And those are CAA agents. Well, you were there, but most of your listeners weren't. So I'll try to, um, and I was there when you were in your groove, I was there when you were truly, you know, a, an extension of the organism that is CAA, but you weren't like that the first day, surely. I wasn't, but not unlike Wyden and Kennedy. You know, if, if Wyden in the 90s was the Paris in the 20s of advertising, as Janet Champ once said, CAA from the mid-2000s for the next decade was at its absolute apex in terms of um, importance in the global entertainment industry. And, and that, just like Wyden's long moment that still continues, but in particular that one, just like that was really a function of culture, so too was the moment at CAA. And the reason I share that is I didn't have to have tremendous confidence. I was given tremendous confidence by the leaders of that company. It wasn't and isn't still agent-like 
where there were sharp elbows and I had to prove myself as somebody who came from a different background and was going to really grow this new department. Um, Brian Lord, Richard Lovett, Kevin Huvane, David O'Connor, who were the four primary partners at the time, they went out of their way really every day to make me feel supported. They brought me in in such a way that the entire company seemed aligned behind the vision of CAA marketing. So I never felt like I had to prove myself. In fact, it was the opposite. I wanted to live up to the support of the organization and the hyper collaborative individuals within it. And the most frequently asked question there is how can I help? So you get to CAA, you've got this yearning uh, to use your skills as a marketer to do something elevated from traditional advertising more in the realm of branded content and branded entertainment, long form shows, the things that you love watching the most as a viewer and a consumer yourself. Now you start to staff the agency up, you start to build it, you start to use some of the infrastructure of what works at traditional agencies to an extent. What were some of your observations as you went out and talked to creatives about to the, the extent to which they shared that yearning to make branded entertainment? That's a great question. I would say on the negative, meaning the thing that filtered people out most frequently, not that they weren't all wonderful people, uh, I could smell from the first 30 seconds of a meeting with a potential future CAA marketing colleague, if they were really a screenwriter who wanted to, you know, write the next great movie. And like, look, look, what advertising creative doesn't have a half-written screenplay in their top drawer, you know, or on their hard drive. Every, everybody does, I guess. Um, but it was really, the, the conversation had to get to exactly the way you set up the question, which is um, I'm, I create a professional or any other aspect of the of the group uh, i i marketing professional um don't love that the thing we create interrupts people that people don't like advertising and want to pour my energy into creating things that people do want and it was that desire that we looked for versus the desire to create pure entertainment because the single worst place in the world to work if you are desperate to be a screenwriter is among the agents who represent all the best writers, directors, actors, producers in the world, um, because they don't want to hear from you. They've, they've got, they've got Academy Award winners coming out their ears. They don't care that you have a script. They do care if you have an idea for Coca-Cola, Diageo, AB InBev, General Motors, all of our great clients, um, that you and that brand are going to put in the world, then they'll help you do that. But if you're hoping to be the next Tarantino, you, you should not work at CAA, let alone CAA marketing. I would be part of the interview process when you'd bring creatives in. And I made sure to include in every one of those interviews very explicitly, guys, there is no lunch hall here. There's no lunch hall where you're going to show up and you're going to crack a joke so funny or say something so witty that... Meryl Streep's agent is going to go, you there, what did you just say? 
come sit over here. And the next thing you know, you're going to be sort of catapulted into this rarefied air of the greatest screenwriters in the world. And so it was a little bit of a mirage for those who didn't enjoy the part of it that was, it's what's in it for a viewing audience, but concurrently, what is in it for a brand? And if you don't like answering the second question as much as the first, you're going to hate this job. And in fact, what's going to happen is it's, it's this mind fuck that proximity wise, you're closer than you've ever been. But actually, professionally, you're, it's what you just said. You're actually much further away than you were had you just not taken this job. Quit your job and write a screenplay if that's what you want to do. That's your path of least resistance. So I think the people, there were people who really understood that well and had a great experience. And I think there were people who, no matter how you, you know, you never misled people about that. And I didn't either, certainly. But it's just a really seductive place. It's an incredible building to walk into. And you, sometimes you, you know, you hear what you want to hear. Oh, definitely. Well, I think yeah. over time we got very, very good at weeding that out. And again, it's not a judgment on the people who wanted that. It's just there are people who can wrap their heads around the fact that the that these agents are your colleagues who are now going to service brand clients the same way they service their talent clients, and you're all in it together to help each other and your clients. Um, versus, like, man, if I just get in there, you could smell it. If I just get in there, I know, I know they're gonna get me into a writer's room and they're just not. Yeah. Man, I got to tell you a story about interviewing with you. <clears throat> so I do the rounds. I fly out to LA. Um, it's about the spring of 2011. And I, I, I meet with everybody else. You're my last meeting of the day. And I sit with you and we're, you know, we've got great chemistry and you're telling me about, you know, your vision for the place. And I'm telling you about sort of what I'm looking for in the next chapter of my career. And then you go, Hey man, can I show you something? And I was like, of course. And you flip your screen around and you go, we just made this thing. And I have no idea how it'll be received, but it's just like, I, th I think it's really good. Tell me, tell me what you think. And you click play on Chipotle back to the start, which isn't out yet. And if, if memory serves correct, you guys made it. And then you decided sort of strategically to hold it for a little while to time it for later in the year. Questions of science, science and progress. Don't speak as loud as my heart. Nobody said it was easy. It's such a shame for us to part. Nobody said it was easy. No one ever said it would be so hard i'm going back to the start can you just talk about the process i know you've talked about that work a lot but can you just talk, talk about the importance of that work to the growth of the company sure and there, there's a lot in there um <clears throat> first of all i i remember showing it to you um and, and it wasn't because I wanted to show it off. It's because I wanted your opinion. If you recall, I was obsessed with your baby carrots campaign. And so because you had made healthy food cool, I loved the strategy behind that. It was the Fast Company article about that campaign that uh, made me want to chase you down and have you come work with us because you catapulted baby carrots into popular culture with an idea. And so... Um, I really wanted your opinion. Um, secondly, <clears throat> I think leading up to the Chipotle work, we had done a bunch of things that I was incredibly proud of, a bunch of firsts that almost nobody knew about. 
Um, and we were not great at publicizing our successes because CAA's approach to um, comms and PR is stay out of the spotlight, it fades the suit. It's an old agent thing where it's all about your clients. And so by, by the time you came in in 2011, we'd had the first ever brand film to premiere at Sundance for eBay. We'd had the second ever brand film to premiere at Sundance. And these were not at Sundance like brands do today. These were put in with the thousands of other films and they were accepted by the jury and in some cases awarded as well. And so um, on the inside, I knew we were doing the thing that we had set out to do for our clients. And if I could get in a room with a client or potential client, I, I was, by the time I met you, very, very confident that what we're delivering, if not better than the rest of the industry, definitely different than the rest of the industry. Um, now coming to Chipotle, that was really the crossover moment. That piece, and I want to be really clear, like I, I was showing you the work of a whole lot of other people. Um, you know, hyper collaborative environment, but you know, Ricardo Viramontes, Jesse Golter, Todd Hunter, Jay Brooker, you know them, and probably half a dozen more, not the least of which Mark Crumpacker, the CMO of Chipotle, who really was as much a creative voice in that as anyone else. But the way that thing existed because of the length, because of the cultural resonance, and um, in a lot of ways because of the unexpected brand behind it the foil wrapped burrito people um it was a real crossover for us it was it was where the proverbial penny dropped i think for the industry that we were up to something because it wasn't so far afield from what ad agencies were trying to do like if you look at hate something the amazing honda animated piece that widen did years earlier right like was was back to the start really that different than hate something brand with a message animated great song celebrity talent and um but i think it 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 had a bigger moment and maybe has maybe a slightly longer tail than hate something but it was advertising people got it and then when they started to pull apart the pop culture math of it all i think they understood that that we at ca had a unique advantage in terms of creating that equation to have something really spike in culture. Yeah. And then the follow-up was the scarecrow, which, you know, I was there and sort of had a front row seat for that. And I remember thinking that there was a real audacity bordering on a miscalculation that the response to, you know, one of the great pieces of branded content of the decade was to try to follow it up with the similar formula. Yes, uh, and, and as you recall, my office and Jesse's were, were both on corners, right? So uh, if both our doors were open, which they always were, we could have conversations back and forth, but we were actually, they were giant offices. And so um, we were pr actually sitting about 30 feet apart. And like, so we'd have conversations and then also yell back and forth. And so uh, as a result, a lot of the conversations are quite memorable. Mm -hmm. And I do remember both up close and at a distance saying, like, like really being concerned about exactly that. And I remember Jesse saying over and over and over again, it's not about the animated film that we're making. The focal point of the Scarecrow is the adventure game, is the app. And we are 
putting way more energy into the game, which became the number one adventure game in the app store, despite being from the foil wrap burrito company. And the, the film was just to support and launch the app. So I think um, in, in Jesse's inimitable brilliance, he was actually taking the pressure off of himself and the rest of the team to have the video outperform the video um, and, and put all the focus on making a great game. And then I think because he gave himself and everybody the room, the, the music and the film came out the way it did. And you know, as a result, the, the film performed the way it did in culture. I'm going to tell you the three most important things I learned about working for you at CAA Marketing, and we'll take them one by one. The first one is, up to that point at CPB, I thought there was such thing as the winning culture, and because it was the one I knew, which was sweatshop, long hours, uh, work till your eyes bleed, late nights, always exhausted, rock and roll, drink the Kool-Aid kind of deal. Um, factory. And then I got to CAA and I realized that, you know, if you just start your day in earnest at 9am, instead of at 2pm when your brain turns back on because you were at work till one in the morning the night before, there's actually the same number of hours to work. So there was a certain, not just a professionalism, but the culture of CAA was so different than Crispin. Um, and they take culture incredibly seriously there, but they define it a little differently and really simply as just how we treat each other. Culture is how we treat each other is how CAA defined it. Culture was important at Christmas, but culture was not how we treat each other. Culture was good enough sucks, basically. Um, so that was the first big thing that I learned. Um, did you have any issues with, with sort of adopting the, the, the general culture um, of the company into a marketing objective? Did, did, all, did all of that culture apply to what you were building? It did because the core of CAA's culture is collaboration. All the, the little big rules built into that culture, return all your phone calls every day, return your colleagues' phone calls first, because then you're sharing information internally, so when your colleague goes out in the world, they have the latest. Uh, you know, if you're asked a favor by a colleague, stop what you're doing help the colleague with what they're doing because by helping them, you're helping their client and then go back to what you were doing. All of those things added up to us as creative professionals working on behalf of the world's leading brands, being able to do things that no one else could do. So buying into that hyper collaborative culture and, and benefiting from it um, was, you know, number one reason for our success, whatever success we, we had or, or continue to have. Uh, the tension was in, in that intensity of work that you described, because you're right, it was start at nine, and then it was go till like 6.30, right? Because the thing about agents is they all leave the building at 6.30 because they all have dinners that start at seven or 7.30. And so what we really had to to work to balance was the intensity of that workday and how to carve out space for ourselves to be creative in what was otherwise a very transactional environment. And right. so, you know, we didn't, we never really had space to do it, physical space to do it. Um, but we created time. We would just started, you know, I remember Jesse and I in the early days looking at each other and saying, I think we just need to block out like two, three hours a day to think 
The second thing I learned, I wouldn't say working for CAA, but working for you and Jesse was that I learned that I was an email coward. I got really good at writing long, strongly worded emails. And I really took pride in my ability to really undress people over email. And for the first time in you and Jesse, I found these two people who rather than, rather than engaging me, you guys would just respond with two words, call me. And I would think to myself, well, fuck, I don't want to call him. I wanted this to be a one-sided conversation where I get to, you know, where I get to completely dominate the entire one side of it. And, uh, and that just helped me become a professional. It helped me realize like, you know, anyone can, anyone can, can write a strongly worded email, but if you're, if you're really prepared to have a conversation, then we're actually going to make some progress here. So I just want to, I don't, there's not really a question at the end of that other than like, thank you for helping me grow up a little bit. I, I do have, I, I, I will add to that. If you email me now, and I know you have recently, um, during work from home, I have doubled down on that. There, I have a six-point auto response right now, the last of which is email. Because like, yeah. If you have something for me, call me, text me, call the main office line so your call can be routed to me if you don't already have my number, and only as an absolute last resort, email me. Now, as a manager on the other side of it, you know, I try to be responsive over email, but I try to be, you know, I try to be really efficient in my responses, give people exactly what they need and nothing more. And it's like, you're asking your boss to engage in this all day battle rap with you. It's just so inefficient and dumb, but you know, it's, it's all part of the growth process. The third thing, and this will transition from CAA marketing to observatory is this notion that I think is applicable to almost any agency today who aspires to make you know, that which is beyond the most traditional form of marketing. And I think you're seeing this at a lot of agencies, which is this notion of think like a marketer, act like a producer. That was a, you know, that was an ethos that we held close to us. And I, I know that it's still probably at the center of your mission at Observatory. What does that mean? Think like a marketer, act like a producer. Well, I, there's a whole lot in there. And it, the, the think like a marketer, is obviously like we're not creatives for creative sake, right? We're solution providers. And so you know, thinking like a marketer means jumping all the way to the end result. Is this going to get someone to prefer one brand of product over another brand of product, regardless of where it sits in the classic marketing funnel? We have one job, get people to like pants A over pants B. Um, and act like a producer is just make it happen. There's, a, there's, there's another saying um, inside CAA um, from Kevin Huvane, own the deal. Like ultimately somebody has to be the person who takes the deal and says, in his case, I am going to get this actress that role, or I'm gonna convince this actor that this is the role of a lifetime. I'm gonna own that deal. And that's what we meant by, you know, act like a producer is make it happen. Who cares if it hasn't been done before? It can be done. Um, and so I, I think in, in the world of marketing services, believe it or not, a lot of people don't always think like marketers. There's a lot of selfish interest that exists in, in marketing services, whether it's steering clients toward the type of work your agency is built on, whether that's 30 second ads or live experience or performance marketing, there's so much specialization that a lot of professionals in marketing services actually don't think like marketers. They think like a sliver of marketers. And then there's this 
feeling sometimes that once you have an idea, it's no longer yours to make happen. Um, and that's, that's not acceptable at CA marketing and it's not acceptable at, at observatory. Find a way. Everyone's a producer. The production department doesn't own producing any more than the creative department, you know, has, has the sole ownership of ideas. Well, and that's an extension of you. I mean, you have to, you have to live that example, which is, I think one thing I, I enjoyed about working for you and I've tried to adopt is like at any given moment, the CCO needs to be the head of strategy. He or she needs to be the lead account director. He or she needs to be whatever the hell they need to be to do exactly what you said, which is own the deal. You know, you can't be the creative monkey with the cigarette dangling out of his mouth, you know, saying, I don't like to talk about money and this isn't my part. Let me know when we can, well, let me know what can be, when we can be conceptual and artistic. You know, if you're serious about selling a thing that's never been made before, then you need to almost be, uh, you need to, you need to be able to shape, shape shift to the needs in the room in front of a client. I think that's a thing that I think probably anyone who's worked for you would, would describe you as, is just having that ability to shape shift. Maybe that started with starting on the account side a little bit, but like, do you see yourself that way? Oh, definitely. You know, there's something I always blanch at, but I hear it all the time. And uh, like my wife heard it from an insurance agent in the Valley. Like the, we were changing insurance and, and he said to her, I hear your husband can sell anything. He's like the greatest salesperson in Hollywood. And I'm always like, oh my God, you just reduced me to like a slick suited used car person. And you know what, what I didn't have the opportunity to share with that insurance person, but is apropos this conversation is it, it's not that I or all the other great people who've come through CAA are, or now observatory are great salespeople. It's that we really believe the thing that we're going to do is going to sell more pants or cars or beer or whatever. And so if everybody's owning the deal and you, and you really believe that this thing's going to work better than the ad they would otherwise make, they, the client would otherwise make, then like that, it's more than passion. It's belief that comes through. And so I think the shape shifting to answer your question comes from that is, is I am constantly running the equation in my head of how can I convinced this person who's paying me that this thing that's different and as a function of being different is scary and does not have a standard measurement associated with it the way ads do. Like we're asking them to make a lot of leaps there. And so we're constantly shape-shifting through that conversation to help allay their fears, build their confidence, and ultimately get them to try something while also preparing ourselves for the fact that it might fail miserably and then we'll have to go try something else. Right. Let's, let's talk a little bit about the genesis of, of observatory. Uh, what made the time right to spin the agency out as an entity still partially backed by CAA, but separate of CAA ultimately? Um, that too was multivariable in um, the short version is I felt like it was time to actually go um, compete with ad agencies for the role of primary marketing partner and that we had enough of a track record at that point of being adjacent to an ad campaign 
And through that adjacency, amplifying the results of that integrated campaign that I felt like we could move from being adjacent to the center. And I didn't feel, with all due respect to the incredible company that CAA is and the great reputation that it has in entertainment and in the business community for those who know it, 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 we were always going to be an entertainment company playing around in marketing. And, you know, outside a five or 10 mile radius from Hollywood, all agents are Ari Gold from Entourage, a character I know you know quite well. And I, I always felt like I, like at a certain point we were managing against the core business of CAA. And that what was happening when we were leaving the room um, was that people were, were saying, yeah, but entertainment's their core business, not marketing. And I wanted our clients and potential clients to believe, because it is, that marketing is the core of what we do and that our clients could trust us to put content and experiences that attract and engage at the center of a truly integrated global campaign and drive business results as a result. And I just didn't trust that, that the market would accept that coming from Creative Artists Agency. Yeah, that makes sense. CAA is a place that is more than an occupation. I think for a lot of people, it is an identity. And if you're in the talent business, you know, one of the things that was most eye-opening to me was each year, the celebration of someone who'd been there for 25 years, 30 years, 35 years. If you're in talent, once you get there, there aren't that many other places to go. You're sort of at the mountaintop. And so as a result of that, it really is an identity unto itself. And I think that you certainly were able to, to embody some of that identity in creating observatory. Was it difficult at all to shed your CAA identity and figure out your new observatory identity. Hardest thing about it was taking the best of the CAA culture. And, you know, I, I would challenge anybody to say they embraced the CAA culture any more than I did. So much so that I, you know, wrote the man, the company manifesto, the new, the new version of it, you know, circa a decade ago. And I say, I say that meaning tied for first with hundreds of other people who were the, the, the paragon example of the CAA culture. But I, I lived and breathed it. And so I think my, one of my greatest fears coming out of CAA was that I was still open to the inputs that would create a new culture for observatory. And um, I, I wish I could take credit for it. I think the 50 or so people who came with me to create the new adventure that is observatory. They're the ones who formed that culture. And I would say the only thing I can take responsibility for was the insistence that we not force culture, that, that we not attempt to define culture through words on day one. We knew what we believed in. It was everything we believed in at CAA marketing. Um, and, and much as we spent a whole lot of time at a whiteboard, articulating the vision and the mission for observatory we didn't put the same energy into articulating the culture we just let it happen and what it's grown into is is for what it's worth i think the best of widen in the 90s the other culture that shaped me um, and the best of caa 
and the best of what it means to be operating at the intersection of entertainment and marketing in 2020. Is the expectation from clients that the, that the solution will always be beautiful film? Or have you sort of been able to, have you been able to open up the aperture to allow them to sort of see you as more? We are really clear from go with a client that when we start to develop a strategic platform or when we're handed a strategic platform that needs to become a creative platform, we have zero supposition whatsoever about the media format that our solution is going to take. We give ourselves the freedom to first develop the strategy, then the creative platform, and then ask ourselves, what is the most powerful way for this creative platform to reach the people we're trying to reach? And so we've, we've worked very hard since 2006, frankly, since we got to CAA, to not receive media orders. So we try to get to the media client and the media agency as early as possible and hold as much planning as long as possible so that we can bring an idea. And I got this from Dino Bernacki, our one-time GM client who became our Harley Davidson client, who became our Mazda client, who always said idea flow before deal flow. And so you know, we, we try to have the idea shape the format, not the other way around. And I think anybody who's listening to this, who ever worked at almost any marketing services agency, in particular on the creative side, you get handed a media order and your yeah. creativity is filling an order. And we've worked incredibly hard to flip that. Now, a lot of our campaigns have 60s and 30s and traditional have outdoor and other. They're all part of it. Those are still powerful ways to reach people but we never placed it at the center and we never assume anything about format at the beginning of the process. It's so simple and it's so logical and yet it is so rare. And to me, it was the secret sauce at CPB. When I interviewed Fernando Machado, he basically said the same thing. He's like, yeah, the secret is ideas first, then buy media, not media first, then fill the order. Um, and for some reason, it's much harder to, it's much harder to do than to say. Um, well, and when you work uh, with clients who sometimes plan their media, you know, six months or a year in advance, um, it can be, it can be a, a tough order. Yeah. Uh, part of your job relies heavily on your own creative taste, you know, even at 50 people, um, which that's a rapid growth in just what, two or three years. Um, but at the end of the day, the buck stops with you and it is your company. And so, you know, you're going to sort of, you're going to set the pace of play creatively in terms of what is the criteria for a great idea uh, when you pinpoint an idea that you love or that someone brings you an idea that you love, can you just describe that sensation? What happens to you physically or emotionally? Well, first of all, I do follow the cliche in hiring and you fit the cliche of always hiring people who are better than me. So I come into those creative conversations with not a little insecurity because I, I, I'm so frequently hit with an idea that I know I never could have come up with. And so, and then, then to answer your question, I, I try to react two ways, always. One is viscerally, like just how did it hit me as a human being before the marketing analysis of an idea comes in. And, and it's really easy to lose sight of the first while delving into the second. And I, I do try to continually bring back the initial visceral reaction 
to know that like that one line right there that's the idea that's when everybody in the room looked up that's when the hair on our arms stood up why are we walking away from that and i think that's the that's the thing that i um most try to do when quote unquote judging ideas i don't think of it as judging i i try to think of it as you know enhancing i guess or focusing right. I always, uh, I, as, as we go back to the idea of Crispin people and widen people, Crispin people were the ones who hired great directors and then stood over their shoulders, got a million takes, got as much fodder as possible for an edit, edited forwards and backwards, and really sort of relied on the happy accident. Um, I've always perceived widen people as knowing exactly what they wanted from the beginning and the thing that's on the paper and in their head becomes the thing that's on the film. Whether that's true or not, it's, it's sort of an aspiration that I admire because it's not how I was trained. I just wonder throughout your career, is there any, would you say there's a consistency between what's in your head in the selling of an idea and the work that actually comes to fruition? No, I think actually the key to whatever success I've had is, it, it's funny. That, I, first of all, that's not true for what it's worth of, of the, I think any of the widened greats. I think there are right. incredible writers, Jeff Kling, who you know, wrote the High Life Man scripts, for example. But if you, you know, when you talk to him and Jeff Williams and other people who worked on High Life Man, they would say, oh yeah, like that thing, that, that one that everybody loves, we actually wrote that on the day. Um, right. so, so even like, even the really, really specific voices were like that voice came from Kling full stop. But once he got into a collaborative set environment, new ideas were born out of that. Um, so back to your question, I think the key to any success we've had is completely releasing ownership of any idea and recognizing that if we're going to go to the trouble to build this thing inside CAA so that we can be you know, a phone call away from all the greatest creative talent in the world, regardless of where they're represented. And now that's true as an observatory, whether it's through ownership or the fact that we've been here more than a decade. Like, if you're going to hire that person, listen to them and listen to the people they listen to and listen to the people that, that, that surround them both. And by the time you get done, nobody has any idea whose idea it was. And the thing that comes back into the world um, is it benefits primarily from the wild collaboration that the process was, not from the moment of inspiration and the first thing that got written down. Some people are anti-salesmen and that works for them to sort of sit back, say things quietly, make people lean in. I'm more in your camp, which is if I'm excited about an idea, I can't hold it back and you're definitely going to know about it. And if this is my chance to communicate that to you, then you may not say yes, but I'm definitely not leaving this room until you know the idea, you know, with the same passion that I feel for it. But so my question about salesmanship to you is about turning words into actions. I think, I think sometimes uh, the, the, the plight of a great creative salesman who can create the vision for an idea is like, now you got to go make it. And you've got this person really excited about something. And there are a lot of decisions to figure out when you walk out of that room, do you feel a pressure uh, to, to immediately sort of spring into action to figure out how to convert those exciting words into action that lives up to the words? It's a lot in that question. Yeah. I'm the, so I'm the, I'm the master of questions that are actually like 17 questions. So you and I share something 
And it's one of the hundred reasons why I wanted to work with you and feel lucky to have worked with you, which is that if, if you believe something, there's no way anybody who comes with an earshot of you isn't going to know how firmly you believe it. And you, like I, like a whole bunch of other people who fall into the category of quote unquote salespeople, um, it, it's not salesmanship or saleswomanship. It's, um, it's taking the time in advance of that meeting to really articulate why. Why do you believe this idea, which has so many risks built into it, is actually going to move your client's business forward? And then the second half of your question, it's not, I don't feel any pressure coming out of the room to deliver. I have loaded all the pressure going into the room. And, and this is something that I know you know, but um, it, it drives me crazy that marketing services companies so consistently present things when they have no idea if or how they're going to pull them off, especially the back of the book ideas behind the standard campaign. It could be a movie show. It could be a live event. We're going to have a game in the app store. We're going to make a number one song, all things, by the way, that we've done. And... And like, you don't say those things cavalierly. You don't offer up, you know, Brad Pitt for whatever, Toyota. And I don't mean that in a pejorative way against Toyota, but I love Toyota. You know what I mean? But you don't, like, you don't do that without vetting whether that star would actually want to be associated with that brand or is conflicted in the category. And it's the same way only amplified when you're doing things that have never been done before. So I think you were there at one point. We wanted to land the Millennium Falcon at South by Southwest and have Daft Punk come out of the Millennium Falcon. And it was for the launch of a partnership that never went anywhere uh, between Coca-Cola and Star Wars. And before we presented the Millennium Falcon landing at South by Southwest, we worked with the production team on you know five different ways that could happen from hologram to hovercraft and things that don't start with H. And so by the time we presented that and the client was like, what, you wanna do what? We said, here's how we're gonna do it. South by Southwest happens next to a body of water, right? So if we get a hovercraft, we can outfit the hovercraft to look like the Millennium Falcon and then it can come in, it can land, it can dock here. And once it's docked, then we can have Daft Punk who's already there waiting. They're not flying the hovercraft. And we literally worked through the logistics of something as bananas of that. Oh, and by the way, we talked to Daft Punk's agent because they're very careful about what they do. And they're definitely open to this idea, but they won't commit until obviously there's an offer. And so baked into the pitch are a bunch of the logistics that make it real for the client in the room and then make it easier for us to go make it happen on the you know, lucky chance they say yes to something that bananas. <laughs> I'm going to end and we're, we're already in the vein of it with the, the last three questions that I like to ask all of my guests. The first one is, what is the word or phrase of advertising jargon that makes your skin crawl the most? Pivot. Hmm. Pivot comes from Silicon Valley. Pivot comes from companies very focused on one thing who then shifted the entire focus of the company toward another. 
pivot is not a replacement for strategy. It's not a replacement for idea. It's not a replacement for consumer insight. And yet it's become a replacement for all of those. And it drives me bananas. Is there any irony in your answer that observatory could be defined as one of the great business pivots? Ha, I appreciate you saying that. Uh, yes, there's irony, but I'll take the compliment over pointing out the irony. How about that? Thank you. Next question. What is uh, the most mortifying response you ever received from clients to work that you presented? Oh, wow. That's another great question. I don't think I've ever been fired on the spot. You know what? I don't, I walk into every single conversation expecting both the worst and the best. I've never been mortified by a response. I think because I was prepared for worse. I mean, for the most part, if you really shit the bed, people are, are mostly hardwired to just say whatever they need to do to get you out of the room as quickly as possible. And that usually leans more into the category of polite than, you know, rude. So it's one of those questions that it's usually one thing that sticks out to people. But I think one of the things that I experienced with you at CAA, there were a couple times where we brought the wrong thing to a client or we brought something to a client that they weren't ready for. And in fact, it's like, we were bringing with us the reputation of such a powerful company that we're just not a place that you should just say like, this is fucking all wrong and terrible. It's like, well, guys, you've given us a lot to think about and super interesting and uh, we'll get back to you. And, and then we, yeah, and then I've we had people not be nice. I mean, I think the most mortifying thing that's ever happened is like people, you know, and look, people are people, they come to meetings and you don't know what happened in their life that morning or what's going on in general. And I'd say like the most mortifying things I think are when people are mean and you don't understand why. And, and, you know, I've had my feelings hurt a lot of times. I've flown across the country or across the world for a meeting and had dozens of people pour weeks of their lives into something and had somebody be dismissive, not because of what we brought, but because of where they were that day. I, I, you know, sitting in the boardroom of a Fortune 50 company when a company was in crisis and we were called in and flew across with, you know, half a dozen people and we sit down and the executive comes in and says, why the hell are we here? What do you have? What can you do that none of my other agencies can do? And I was like, whoa, like you call, I thought you called us. Is there some misunderstanding here? And like to this day, like I get nervous thinking about it. Like I've had my feelings hurt a lot, which is I guess different than being mortified by a response but I try to lay it off on the, it's not us, it's them. Right. And the final question is called the one that got away. Maybe it's the Millennium Falcon, Falcon idea. What is that one idea that it, you tried to sell it, it just didn't work out. Maybe you tried to sell it to one client, it didn't work out and two years later, it ended up working out really well as a pitch to another client and they didn't buy it either. But for whatever reason, that, that unsold idea stays in your heart. I wish you had given me that question in advance because I know there are 10, but because I've used the Millennium Falcon idea, I'm now stuck on it. But yeah, I think landing the Millennium Falcon at South by Southwest would have, would have been quite cool. I, I will say this. Um, I try really hard not to recycle ideas. We try hard not to recycle ideas, but that, 
that one feels like one that definitely got away and one that you really couldn't present to anyone else other than one of the biggest brands in the world tying to the biggest entertainment franchise in the world. Well, I will tell you every now and then I'll get a email or a LinkedIn message asking me what my one that got away was and how I should include that. And I've never done it until now. I'm going to include my one that got away on your episode because you were there for it. And it's not the most mind blowing idea, but I just loved it. It was an idea for Chipotle. It was during the height of the Colbert report on Comedy Central. And so we had this idea for Chipotle, which was, uh, what if we could create a special burrito that would benefit small farms around the United States? Uh, and it was, we would have the CMO or CEO of Chipotle go on the Colbert report and create the ultimate at that point, you know, Colbert was bigger than life and had this sort of Bill O'Reilly shtick that he doesn't do as much anymore, but it made sense. Then it was going to be the ultimate American burrito. It would be two tortillas pasted together with guacamole. It'd be double every single ingredient and it would be wrapped in an American flag uh, tin foil and the proceeds of every one of those Colberitos uh, would oh. go to small farmers. And it's one of those words that actually it looks better in type than it does when it hits your ear. When you see it in type, you're like, oh my God, Colbert and burrito marry perfectly. And so when we came up with it, I was like, well, the Colberito is going to be the thing this year. Everyone is going to want a Colberito. They're going to sell millions of Colberitos. So that's my one that got away that I've been, you I've been waiting to share until you came on the show. And you know, he, he, you know, he would have, he would have crushed the delivery. Well, we reached You know what? Chipotle liked it. And we reached out to him and his representative was like, sure. 7 million bucks. So it was like some completely uh, outrageous number. You know, I remember that now because I rem yeah, the, it was, we got jammed by network integration. Yes. With all yeah, they had like a Taco Bell deal or something yes, and they didn't yes. want to do Chipotle. That's right. Yes. Yeah. All right, buddy. Well, first ever talking to ourselves Zoom, I feel like it was a success. I wouldn't have wanted to deal with anybody else but you. Uh, you're a guy who taught me a lot in a short amount of time that stays with me. And you taught me lessons that I think about often now being in a management position. Uh, and for all that you've accomplished, I think you're Greatest chapter is still yet to be written, and I can't wait to see what you do, man. Thank you for joining me today. Omid, thank you. I've always been an admirer, but I am uh, an admirer bordering on envy, if not jealousy, at what you've built with talking to ourselves. It has been a real pleasure. Thanks, buddy. Okay, talk soon. See ya. All right. Thanks so much to my buddy, Jay Goodman. That was really fun. And at a time of pandemic, it's great to see a familiar face, even if over Zoom and reconnect and have a conversation like that. So thank you to Jay. Thank you to my friend and the producer of this podcast, Jeff Fiorello. It's great to see him on Zoom as well. I miss him. I'm looking at him as I'm saying that. Jeff, I miss you. I love you. We don't tell each other how we feel as a society. This pandemic hopefully allows us to articulate those feelings a little bit more intimately. You're a very important person in my life and I appreciate you. And if you're enjoying the pod, please subscribe, rate it, tell a friend, stay safe, wash your hands. Until we talk again, peace.